We're back in our uh, back to our study of Song of Solomon. So, if you want to turn there, the Song of Songs. We're in lesson number five, uh, which I mentioned will be, I think, uh, the fifth of uh, what will be a total of seven seven lessons. Uh, this morning, I want to pick up where we left off uh, a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, last time, we started with chapter three, verse six. Uh, and we noted that this uh, beginning here in, in chapter three, verse six, is the is the beginning of the wedding procession. Uh, in fact, uh, some view everything up to this point in the book as speaking about the betrothal period or the time of engagement for this couple, uh, which would have been a time in which the the man would have prepared a place for his bride, uh, while the bride prepared herself for married life. Uh, when the day of the wedding arrived, the bride uh, would have put on white robes, uh, often richly embroidered. Uh, she would have covered herself with a veil and, and placed a garland uh, on her head. The bridegroom, dressed in his finest clothes and with a, a handsome headdress or, or a wreath uh, on his head, would set out for the house of the bride's parents. Uh, and he would do this being accompanied by his, his friends, uh, often by uh, musicians and singers uh, and persons bearing torches if the procession happened to be uh, on the move at night. And together, uh, the couple would go back to the groom's uh, residence with their friends singing and dancing their way back to his house. And once there, uh, a feast would be served uh, and celebrated with great joy, and then that evening the bride would be escorted to the nuptial chamber by her parents, uh, and the groom by his companions, or perhaps the bride's parents, and the marriage uh, would be consummated through sexual union. And then on the next day, the festivities would, would simply resume with guests uh, dropping by for the wedding feast uh, and a celebration that would have lasted for seven days uh, maybe even more. So, as it still is today, it's it's a uh, this is a very festive occasion, uh, one in which um, not just the immediate family, but in some cases even the whole community would have participated. So, so here in chapter three, we, we read about King Solomon actually coming for his bride and their return to Jerusalem, where they will be married and will consummate their union. And as I mentioned before, some, some translations have uh, the, the bride, the Shunammite, uh, speaking here uh, in verse 6, but it may be better understood as coming from, uh, we call them the DOJ, the, the, the daughters of Jerusalem. So we, uh, we, we looked at these verses, and I'll just read them again for us just to kind of get us back into flow of what we've been discussing. This is chapter 3, verse 6. It says, What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke? perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant. Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon. So the idea is that Solomon and his bridal party are making their way to the wedding. Uh, Sixty mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair, from the timber of Lebanon, 
He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric, and its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. So this is the setting of this scene. You've got this procession coming to the wedding, Solomon and all of his group and all of his glory. And then in chapter 4, Solomon praises the beauty of his bride. And we pointed out two obvious elements in this section and over uh, in chapter 5, verses 10 to 16 as well, how he praises her, uh, praises his bride, and then how she in turn praises him and and we, we talked about that affirmation that is so important in a marriage relationship. Now, Song of Solomon chapter 4, you'll remember where we are in this, in this book. He's identifying the beauty of the moment of the wedding. And, and notice the descriptions here of, of Solomon uh, in terms of what he is saying regarding his wife-to-be. Again, he's most likely speaking these verses uh, at least verses 1 to 7, in, in perhaps in public or within the hearing of others, uh, and, and those more intimate words beginning in verse 8 of chapter 4 uh, in private as they prepared to consummate their marriage in verse 16 and in chapter 5, verse 1. So he says here in chapter 4, 1, this is Solomon, How beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your, your hair is like a flock of goats that, we have, that have descended from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one, of, one among them has lost her young. So we simply said, it's your teeth are they're white, they're straight, and you have all of them. It was just commending her really from head to toe, verse Three, your lips are like a scarlet thread, your mouth is lovely, your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil, your neck is like the tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields, all the, all the round shields of the mighty men. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle which feed among the lilies until the cool of the day when the shadows flee. I will go my way to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense, again, not a reference to backpacking. Uh, all these are just symbolic uh, uh, figures of speech, metaphors to, to, to speak of the beauty of, of his wife and the beauty of this relationship, but in a way that sort of conceals uh, some of the details. And then he says this in verse 7, You are altogether beautiful, my darling, and there is no blemish in you. And this, of course, as I mentioned last time, is, is the key verse, I think, concerning uh, her beauty. And so we talked about that, and there was a similar, again, we looked over in chapter 5 at a statement that she made about him. Again, him affirming her physical beauty, her affirming his desirability. So we come to now verse 8. We'll pick up here. This is where we sort of left off. Verse 8 says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. May you come with me from Lebanon. Journey down from the summit of Amana, from the summit of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountains of leopards. So this, this appears to be Solomon appealing to his bride to put away, 
if you will, distracting thoughts um, of her former life, perhaps even with the references here to the, the, uh, the lions and leopards, perhaps even fearful thoughts, uh, and to give him her full attention on this, their wedding night, uh, may also, of course, be emphasizing the fact that they, there's been distance, and so he's, he's, he's talking about eliminating the distance that's been there and, and them drawing close. Verse 9, you have made my heart beat faster, my sister, my bride. You have made my heart beat faster with a single glance of your eyes, with a single strand of your necklace. And notice he's, he's now beginning to refer to her as his bride because this is in the context of, of the wedding. Uh, it's a term in the Old Testament to be translated bride. It's translated in other places depending on the context as, as, a, as a daughter-in-law. Now, if you've got the, um, the ESV, it sounds a little, little different. That the, the, I, I typically teach out of the New American Standard, but if you have the ESV, it goes like this. You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. So the, the meaning here is, is a little bit, uh, it's, it's, it's debated, but it, it, may, it may mean something like, you have taken away my heart, um, or that is, take, if you will, take, taken away my senses. It's actually, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a verb, it's a verbal form of the noun heart in the Old Testament, but it's a combination that we don't have another example of in the Old Testament. So it's, you're sort of trying to put it together, what's going on here. But uh, the, the, the meaning might have something, you know, we might say her, her beauty was so overwhelming that it robbed him of his senses and deprived him of reason, okay? Um, now, with some of you, I've shared the uh, story of our, uh, our wedding day, um, Kelly and I's, uh, our, our wedding 24 years ago. I, I made this decision. Uh, we were married right over here at, down the road at First Baptist Woodstock uh, in, their, in their chapel, and I made a decision that that I would sing to her before she came down the aisle. Okay? Big mistake. <laughs> Big mistake. I don't know. Where were my counselors? Where was my wedding planner? I mean, who, 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 would, who would endorse such a crazy thing? And for those of you who've been walking with the Lord for two or more decades or been in the church that long, the Stephen Curtis Chapman song, I Will Be Here, okay? First of all, I'm not that good of a singer. Okay, that's that was that was the. I should have auditioned or done something. Somebody should have proved. Uh, don't just take a, a person's word for it. Oh, I can sing. You know, so that was that was the first problem. The second problem was when you're standing. Okay, so some of you know Johnny Hunt. Johnny, the pastor at First Baptist Woodstock. He he did our uh, ceremony, but he is standing there at the front, and I'm standing there at the front with a microphone, and I start to sing this song, and they open the back doors. And my bride is standing in the back doors, and it was over. I mean, it's, it was the worst song that's ever been sung in a church. It was awful. My voice is cracking. I'm, I'm forgetting the words, and I'm just completely falling apart, right? I, I could say, okay, in that moment, her beauty was so overwhelming that it robbed me of my senses and deprived me of reason. Okay? That's the... 
Yes, and I haven't been the same since, okay? Crazy move, okay? But I think that's the, that's the concept here, is it's, it's, just, it's just overwhelming that my sense of reason just goes out the window, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was crying. Everybody was <laughs> feeling sorry for me. <laughs> so that's quite an effect, all right? But, of course, it goes along with all that we've looked at so far. Verse 10. How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than all kinds of spices. Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue, and the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Honey and milk. You ever heard that before? Right? You ever heard of milk and honey? Yeah, where's that? Where do you what do you think of? Milk and honey. What comes to mind? Promised, Promised land. land, right? Okay, so there's this uh, very very common expression. Uh, usually, it is the opposite. It's usually we, and I think almost every case in the Old Testament, it, it's uh, it's milk and honey, not honey and milk. But but the the it's basically the idea of of God. It has the, connotes the 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 concept of of the blessings of God. Essentially, God's blessings overflowing. Verse twelve. A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. So now we have this twin, uh, these, these twin themes of the enclosed garden uh, as well as a sealed spring or fountain. And this becomes really just a euphemism for, for her sexuality. Okay, so what, what he's basically doing is praising her for her chastity, praising her for her purity because she has kept herself pure for the man that she would marry. So she's locked, if you will, and sealed up. Verse 13, your shoots are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits, henna with nard plants, nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes along with all the finest Spices. So he refers to her as an orchard, or it's it's really a term that speaks of an enclosed park or a pleasure ground which were the exclusive domain of the kings and nobility of Solomon's day. And so these kings, even even kings abroad, per- Persian kings, would have these uh, these orchards, these these sort of uh, these parks and these grounds and gardens that were essentially closed off to every these weren't publicly accessible right these were exclusively for the kings to enjoy so again Solomon would have known that he would have ex- had those he would have known kings that had those with the um, the relations he, he had internationally so he's just picking up again he's pulling from every facet of life he's just every good thing he's just grabbing all these things these scents and these sights and all this to Describe what what's going on in this in this moment. She was she was like a garden full of beautiful and pleasing plants with spices and fruits and flowers, and Solomon loves this garden with all of its delights, and he makes his point vividly romantic. She looks beautiful. She smells gorgeous and appears refreshingly pure. She rivals the most lovely, most unblemished pastoral scenes of Israel. And he perceives her to be a beautiful woman in all respects, not merely an attractive body to satisfy his pent-up sexual drive. 
So he's in every every way he is affirming and complimenting her. And then he says this, verse 15, You are a garden spring, a well of fresh water and streams flowing from Lebanon. So she's not just a beautiful garden, but it sort of ch- changes the imagery here just a little bit. He's saying she's not just a beautiful garden, but she's, she's also the source of the water for the garden. So he uses this, he compares her to a garden really in verses 12 to 14, but then he, he goes beyond that and says, you know, you know what, she's, she's the very source that makes the garden what it is. She, she is a, and he uses this term, a well or a watering place, or a, a well of underground water. So it's not, it's not standing stagnant water, but flowing, fresh, healthy, thriving water that is pure and a source of refreshment. And then we notice this dramatic shift in verse 16 with the term, and I believe it's in every, most all the modern translations, um, with this term awake, awake in verse 16. Because previously, the Shunammite had told the daughters of Jerusalem, back in chapter 2, verse 7, as well as in chapter 3, verse 5, she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Now why? Why, why, would, she, why would she ask uh, adjure the daughters of Jerusalem to do that. And it was because as she was considering the, all that she believed about her groom, her future husband, as she considered all of the feelings that she had for him, those feelings that were deep and strong, she realized the importance of channeling those feelings, of those emotions in the right direction and the need for self-control, to be patient. We've talked about this, There's that... That, that she had a, we might say, a healthy preoccupation with sexual restraint. But now, the time has come, right? And Solomon testifies that whereas she was closed to his physical love before marriage, now she is appropriately open to it. And in wonderful pictures of love, she responds and invites Solomon to come to her as the winds would gently blow through a garden. Verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come, wind of the south, make my garden breathe out fragrance. Let its spices be wafted abroad, or literally is, may may the fragrances, may the spices, literally, may they flow. Okay, so it's like... This All this language that's talking about this hold back, hold back, hold back, locked up, sealed up, now it's unleash, release, let it flow, right? Let these things flow. Then, he said, then she says, may, in the end of that verse, may my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. So the language is discreet, okay? It's not filthy, but it is apparent. Right? She is inviting Solomon to come. She, she's telling him, I'm ready. So she was previously closed, but now she is open, and she describes herself not simply as an open garden, but as his garden. 
right? So she's, she was a closed garden. Now she's an open garden, but not open to everything and anyone, right? She's open, but there's the exclusivity, right? So it's not, it's not this release of restraint in the sense of, oh, man, you've been, you've been holding that back. All the, now it's just time to uh, let it go. Not in that way, but it's, it's time to let it go, but still directed, right? Still focused. Because for the first time, it's, it's his garden, okay? Signifying voluntary sexual surrender as would be appropriate for a wife to her husband. And while the guest feasted, the, the couple consummated their marriage, and Solomon announced the blessing of this, chapter 5, verse 1. He says, I have come into my garden, okay? So there it is. He's, remember, he's the one writing this. And he refers to her as just a closed garden, right? He doesn't assign that, that sense of possession, but he does it in chapter 4, verse 16. Then he follows that up in his own words. I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. In other words, I had it all. <laughs> I mean, in other words, everything that he's been describing—the myrrh and the and the and the sensations and the smells and all of those things, the honeycomb and the honey and the blessings—all of that, the wine, the—he's just saying all of that. I have had all of that, and on that day, everything changed. Everything changed. All of that restraint, all of that guarding. All of that care taken not to defraud one another was absolutely critical to make sure that the cart didn't get before the horse, right? To make sure that the intimacy of the one flesh relationship didn't get in front of the act of leaving father and mother or exchanging a vows. Because that's kind of what happens in with young people, right? I mean, that's the temptation. The temptation is to... When Genesis talks about leaving and cleaving and weaving, what a lot of people today want, they want to experience that sense of oneness, that intimacy, but they want to do that before they're prepared to leave <laughs> father and mother, right? And to make that, that kind of commitment that, that marriage requires. So... All of that restraint was important, but now, in God's timing, after commitments have been expressed in the context of the safety of family and in the presence of witnesses, what was once something that was to be avoided is now something to be enjoyed. And that's what I mean by everything changed, right? Because, again, all of this... All of this exercise of self-control and being careful about circumstances and situations and, and, and being careful even to avoid the appearance of evil, right? Now those things, right, they, they dissipate. And, and, and what, what, what two people would have done prior to that that would have literally put them under God's hand of judgment, right, and correction now is something that, I'm going to say, the Lord smiles on it. Right? He's not condemning them. He's not judging them, but he's actually smiling on what is taking place here. And then we have a very interesting statement in the second half of verse 1. It says, Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, 
O lovers. Eating and drinking, of course, referring to the sexual consummation mentioned in the first half of the verse. Uh, Again, there's no little debate about the about the identity of the speaker or the speakers here and the audience addressed in this line. And some of you have translations where it's, you know, again, it's it's trying to help you to say this is so-and-so talking, and some translations would say it's the bride, some would say it's the groom, some would say it's the daughters of Jerusalem, some would say it's the friends of the groom. There's all kinds of thoughts here. So, So some say that Solomon is addressing his bride with this statement, Uh, Some say that she is addressing him. Uh, Both of those views, unlikely because the form of both exhortations and the addressees are plural. Okay, so it's not someone talking to an individual, a singular person. It's someone talking to more than one person. So it's unlikely that it would be Solomon talking to the Shunammite or Shunammite to him. Some say he and his bride are addressing the wedding guests. So this is if they're, they're saying to their wedding guests, eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers, which would be a little odd, right, to address. Because if we're just talking about eating and drinking at the banquet, that would be understandable. But because of the near context, the eating and the drinking are sexual. This is still referring to the symbolism of sexual union. And so it would be strange for, for them to be talking to a group of people about these these uh, kinds of things, uh, these intimate uh, and, and private things regarding their sexual union. Uh, others believe that the wedding guests are addressing the two of them, uh, wishing them, in a sense, all the joys and marital bliss of the honeymoon. So it's sort of like, it, it could be the people that at the wedding saying this to them just to say, enjoy all of that, okay, that God has given. That's a possibility. A lot of a lot of folks go that direction. Uh, and then there are some, uh, like John MacArthur, who views this as something that God Himself interjects. Uh, God is not mentioned in this particular book. We mentioned that early on. This is just one one of the few books of the Old Testament where the, the Lord's name itself is not brought up. And and MacArthur says that this in in his. In his, from his standpoint, this is the this is the Lord's. This is where he's mentioned. Okay, his name is not mentioned, but this is the Lord, who is the one who is viewing all of this, right? Who knows all that's going on? This is God, in a sense, extending an invitation for them as both friends and lovers to romance to the last crumb. He says, and love to the last drop in a way serving as God's affirmation of sexual love between husband and wife as holy and beautiful. And again, there's, you know, there are, there would, there's some support for that. Uh, if you think about even in the, in the context of a couple's physical relationship, because we, we saw this over in Proverbs, Solomon writes this, in fact, over in Proverbs, in chapter 5, verse 21, for a man's ways, and it's in the, in the context of, of, of a husband being satisfied with his wife and the dangers of infidelity, but he says, for all a man's ways, or all the, all, all, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. So the point that Solomon makes over in Proverbs, Proverbs 5 is, in both cases, whether it's 
whether it's an act of adultery and infidelity or whether it is an act of of God-ordained pleasure within the context of a marriage relationship, God sees all things, right? So, so that's, that's MacArthur's view and, and, and others uh, may, may take that. Whichever view you adopt, uh, one thing is certain, that the metaphors used express the fully satisfying nature of what has just occurred. And the relationship of both the groom and the bride has changed to one another as well as to all the rest of the human race. That is why traditionally in our culture a wedding cannot be performed without witnesses. That is the reason behind the publishing of, of wedding proclamations, right? The, the taking of a woman by a man is a public matter. And what a person does with his or her sexuality is of great concern to God. So in chapter, chapter 4, verse 16, and chapter 5, verse 1, this is, we've said, is the climax of the book. In fact, I just, just for reference up here on the board, beginning, we got first verse of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, obviously, the last, chapter 8, verse 14, and then we talked about this chiastic structure in the book and how all of this sort of centers upon this these two, these two verses, right in the, in the middle, this the end of chapter four and the very beginning of of chapter uh, five. Everything from the beginning of chapter one has been leading up to this moment, and from this point, everything will not regress or say or go downhill. Probably not a good way to think about this, uh, but will but will actually flow out of this particular. Beautiful union. Now, from all this, I want to draw out several principles. I've got six of them. Okay, so get you if you're taking notes. Hopefully, these will be good, and I'll give you some practical application here for us. Um, Principle number one: Sex in marriage is very good. Sex in marriage is very good. Genesis one twenty-seven. You'll remember. Verse, uh, verse 27 and following, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Down in verse 31, God saw all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So remember, this is pre-fall, right? This is before the entrance of sin into the world, and there is something fundamentally good about human sexuality. Sexual desire is very powerful. It is, it is designed by God to be powerful. It is not inherently sinful. But the reality is that some people and even some Christians have a wrong view of sexuality for, for many reasons, perhaps because of things that have happened in their past or maybe because they were told no, 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 no for years, uh, perhaps by parents, but were never told, the, as we said last time, the stronger yes. So it was always about pro- prohibition, stay away, stay away, stay away, but, but parents sometimes don't put before their kids, when they're teaching their kids, the blessing of of what God has created and what He has designed. But we need to know that sex in marriage is very good. 
And along with that, we could add principle number two, sex in marriage is a gift. It is a gift. Again, we looked at Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15. uh, As we said, using language that a child would not fully appreciate, but that an adult would clearly get. Solomon says there in Proverbs 5.15, drink water. And notice, notice the similarity in the descriptions here from what we just read in uh, Song of Solomon. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Okay? Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her body, no, with her love, right? For why, he says to his son, for why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Basically, are you an idiot? Are you crazy? That has nothing to do with true love. You say it this way, your wife knows what, if you're married, your wife knows what your feet smell like, right? Sad, right? <laughs> she knows what you look like when you wake up in the morning, right? She knows, your, she knows your failures, she knows your weaknesses, and yet she is still willing to give herself to you. That is not what is usually going on in an illicit or an adulterous relationship that is built on fantasy, that rarely lasts because they didn't know what they were getting in the first place, right? It was all about lust. It was all about an airbrushed image of what life was going to be like, and it collapses on itself because it wasn't real. So the wonderful thing that Solomon is offering here is a picture of what true love is and what true sexuality is all about, okay? That marriage is a gift, and sex in marriage is a gift, a gift that is to be enjoyed, that, that someone is beautiful to you and that you are beautiful to them and, 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 and they know you and they still choose to give themselves to you. So just because sex is something that has been abused, it's been distorted, in some cases it's been underemphasized, in other cases it's been overemphasized or dragged through the, through the mud, that does not mean that it's not a gift from God. For that matter, many of God's good gifts have been similarly victimized, right? Many of God's good gifts have been drugged through the mud. Many of God's gift, gifts have been depreciated, mis, misunderstood, and minimized. So sex and marriage is a gift, and there is to be declared a yes, 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 over this thing called marriage. Principle three, sex is more than physical activity. Sex is more than physical activity. Uh, you may want to turn over to 1 Corinthians 6, uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, 1 Corinthians 6. At the end of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is addressing a problem in the church where uh, there were those in the church that were thinking um, from sort of uh, influences of culture and, and some false teaching, Gnosticism and other things, they were they had this idea that their sexuality was somehow removed from their spirituality in the sense that they could be doing things sexually sinful but not see them as something that was necessarily corrupting. 
because it was just something that they did with their bodies. And they had they drew this very hard line between what you did sort of in the flesh or what you did in your body and through your body and then your spiritual life. And so Paul responds in order to correct that mentality, uh, a mentality that would treat sex as something that is simply a physical act. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So Paul says there's something that is spiritually significant that happens in the context of sexual activity. That sexuality involves the person of Jesus and is a fundamental, we've talked about this, it is a fundamental function of worship, right? That, that the marriage bed includes how you look, how you, how you smell, how you talk, how you serve, how you have followed Christ, right? The whole you. So sex is, is far more than just physical activity. Uh, it, it's more than physical touch. It's as much about what is going on inside of us, right? Going on in our hearts and minds. And if that is true then developing a fulfilling sex life as a husband means I concern myself more with bringing, bringing generosity and service to bed than bringing washboard abs to bed, right? That the things that I really need to be working on are, are spiritual attitudes and qualities, right? It, it means seeing my spouse as a holy temple of God, not just a tantalizing human body because sex in marriage is a covenant renewal that involves worship. A union of two people together where you play out the drama again of the one flesh union when, you, when God put you together when you said, I do, and, and God knit you together in that moment. Principle number four, marital sex is the good and helpful expression of good desires. He continues in chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good, and this it appears to be their motto. So he's addressing a statement that they're making. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, and you can almost say like in quotes, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, end quote. So he's addressing that, un, that's, that was their saying. But he responds, verse 2, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. That is to say, in the context of a world where sexuality is such a strong human reality, that the legitimate expression or avenue of that sexuality is that each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Now, we'll come back, I think, probably in our last Sunday together in this series, talk, uh, I'll address the issue of, of, of singleness. So we just, we'll just not comment on that at this point. Yes? Could you repeat that principle one more 
I said uh, in, in that the only basically in a this with this this reality of sexuality that the o- that the only legitimate expression or avenue of that sexuality is that each man each man is to have this is Paul's answer is to have his own wife or for, or for a woman is to have her own husband. Marital sex is the good and helpful expression of good desires. <clears throat> okay? Then Paul goes on. Another principle. Verse, uh, ch- verse 3. Marital sex is to be a regular activity. Okay? So again, in the context of marriage, this is to be a regular activity. Verse 3. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. That is to say that we are commanded, not given, this is not a suggestion, this is not an option. We are commanded to work in marriage at satisfying our spouse's desires. Uh, John Piper has written a book called uh, This Momentary Marriage. And in his chapter titled Faith and Sex in Marriage, he quotes Hebrews 13 Four and verses four and five. It says, "Let let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money." Okay, and he's commenting on this issue of the connection between talking about sexual immorality and adultery, and then saying right behind that, "Keep your life free from the love of money." And so he's talking about why these two concepts. And this is a a long quote, but I think it's worth, uh, worth uh, hearing. So he comments on this and he says, It is remarkable that the writer puts money and the marriage bed side by side. It is not a coincidence that most counselors today would put money and sexual relations near the top of their list of trouble spots in marriage. Agreement in money matters and harmony in the marriage bed don't come easily. Our focus is on the marriage bed. But don't lose sight of how closely connected the two are. The pursuit of power and the pursuit of pleasure mingle in these two areas as in no others. The writer is jealous to protect the marriage bed. He wants it to be good. He does not want it to be ruined. And so he exhorts, let the marriage bed be undefiled. He's not thinking about ceremonial defilements. We know that because he says God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He is thinking about all sinful defilements. Ultimately, sin is anything that does not come from faith. That is what Paul says in Romans 14, 23. So the writer is saying, guard sexual relations in marriage by not doing anything that does not come from faith. Faith, he says in Hebrews 11, 1, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In other words... Faith is the confidence we feel in all that God promises to be and do for us in all the tomorrows of our lives. Now, how does such faith produce sexual attitudes and acts that are not sin? In the context, the writer shows us how this works in relation to money. We can then make the application to sex. In Hebrews 13.5, he says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. The love of money is a desire that, dis, that displeases God. It is sin. Now, the antidote to this sinful love and all the evils that flow from it is contentment. He says, be content with what you have. 
But the writer doesn't leave us there by ourselves to somehow crank up contentment. He goes on to give a basis for contentment. He says, For he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the basis for contentment is the promise of God's unfailing help and fellowship. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying this, God has made such comforting, reassuring, hope-inspiring promises in His Word that if we have faith in these promises, we will be content. And contentment is the antidote to the love of money and to the antidote for all sexual sin. Sin is what you feel and think when and do when you are not taking God at His word and resting in His promises. So the command of Hebrews 13.4 can be stated like this, Let your sexual relations be free from any act or attitude that does not come from faith in God's word. Or to put it positively, have those attitudes and do those acts in your marital sexual relations that grow out of the contentment that comes from confidence in God's promises. But now immediately a problem emerges. Someone will, may ask, if I am content through faith in God's promises, why should I even seek sexual gratification at all? That is a good question. And the first answer to it is, maybe you shouldn't seek any sexual gratification. Maybe you should stay single. And then he would comment on that later. He says, but there is a second answer to the question, namely, the contentment that God's promises give does not mean the end of all desires, especially bodily desires. Even Jesus, whose faith was perfect, got hungry and desired food and got tired and deserved, desired rest. Sexual appetite is in the same category. The contentment of faith does not take it away or any more than it takes away hunger and weariness. What then does contentment mean in relation to ongoing sexual desire? I think it means two things. First, if gratification of that desire is denied through singleness, then that denial will be compensated for by an abundant portion of God's help and fellowship through faith. If Paul could learn to be content in hunger, then we can learn to be content if God chooses not to give us sexual gratification. Second, the other thing contentment means in relation to ongoing sexual desire is this. If gratification is not denied us but is offered to us in marriage, we will seek it and enjoy it only in ways that reflect our faith. To put it another way, while the contentment of faith does not put an end to our hunger, weariness, or sexual appetite, it does transform the way that we go about satisfying those desires. And then he goes on. I wish I had time. He, t- he gets into this 1 Corinthians 7 passage. Um, he's talking about this, I, this concept of one sort of bo- the husband's body belonging to his wife, the wife's body belonging to him. He says, but what we really need to see is what Paul commands in verses 3 and in verse 5 in view of these mutual rights. He does not say, therefore, stake your claim and take your rights. He says, husband, give her the rights that belong to her, and wife, give him the rights that belong to him. And in verse 4, do not refuse one another. In other words, he does not encourage the husband or wife who wants sexual gratification to seize it without concern for the other's needs. Instead, he urges both husband and wife to always be ready to give his or her body when the other wants it. I infer from this and from Jesus' teaching in general that happy and fulfilling sexual relations in, in marriage depend on each partner aiming to give satisfaction to the other. If it is the joy of each to make the other happy, a hundred problems will be solved before they happen. 
Husbands, if it is if it is your joy to bring her satisfaction, you will be sensitive to what she needs and wants. You will learn that the preparation for satisfactory sexual intercourse at 10 p.m. begins with tender words at 7 a.m. and continues through the day as kindness and respect. And when the time comes, you will not come on like a Sherman tank, but you will know her pace and bring her skillfully along. Wives... It is not always the case, but usually it seems that your husband wants sexual relations more often than you do. Martin Luther said he found twice a week to be ample protection from the tempter. Martin Luther. Bless his heart. He says, I don't know if his wife Katie was up for it every time or not, But if you're not, give it anyway, unless there are extraordinary circumstances. I do not say to you husbands, take it anyway. In fact, for her sake, you may go without. The goal is to outdo, listen to this, the goal is to outdo one another in giving what the other wants. Both of you make it your aim to satisfy each other as fully as possible. And that's the key, folks. The key is that the goal in marriage when it comes to sexual, this issue of sexuality, the goal is your spouse's satisfaction, which is often going to be different for a husband and a wife. And if you put some kind of pressure on this part of your relationship, you will find that it becomes like a third person in your sexual union. Okay? Last one, and we'll... We'll, have to, we'll come back to some application next week. Principle number six, marital sex is a part of God's design to also fight off sexual temptation. Marital sex is a part of God's design to also fight off sexual temptation. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 5, he says, Stop depriving one another except, for, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In other words, a healthy sexual relationship between a husband and wife where you understand the beauty of God's design, where you are affirming one another, serving one another, and pursuing one another with passionate pleasure, you actually serve to provide a level of protection around your spouse because of a satisfied marital sexuality. Again, John Piper in that same book in a section titled Defeating Satan with Frequent Sex, he says this. In Ephesians 6.16, Paul says we should ward off Satan with the shield of faith. Here he says to married people, ward off Satan with sufficient sexual intercourse. Don't abstain too long, but come together soon so that Satan will gain no foothold. Well, which is it? Do we guard ourselves from Satan with the shield of faith or the shield of sex? The answer for married people is that faith makes use of sexual relations as a means of grace. For the people God leads into marriage, sexual relations are a God-ordained means of overcoming temptation to sin, whether it's the sin of adultery, sin of sexual fantasizing, sin of pornography. And he says this, faith humbly accepts such gifts and offers thanks. So we'll come back. I've got, I think what it'll be, it'll be mainly for husbands. Uh, I mean, it'll be applicable, I think, to everyone, but 
particularly to the men, some, I think, some helpful truths uh, uh, that will be, uh, I think, good to, to talk about. And, um, you know, I, I would just say um, that uh, this is just, this is an area you, you just cannot, you cannot give up on this area. Uh, based on Song of Solomon 4, based on 1 Corinthians 6, based on Proverbs 5, Genesis 1 and 2, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Hebrews chapter 13, all these things, this issue of sexuality in the confines of your marriage is worth working on. Awkwardness and all. And, and, and yes, there's, there's, there's sometimes there's pain, there's challenge, there's misunderstanding in these things, but you, you cannot give up you cannot retreat into a corner and say, well, we've, for, we've worked on that for two years and we've worked on that for that matter for 20 years. We've been trying to figure this out, but it's not working. You cannot afford to do that. And so I want to invite you back into that conversation in, in your marriage. Uh, and maybe you need someone to help you to do that. And, and, and that's, you know, I mean, I, I talk with couples sometimes about that. And we've got uh, lots of godly men, lots of godly women, lots of godly couples in the church that would be willing to come alongside of, of some couples that might be struggling to even get into a conversation about these things. But this, this, this is an area of stewardship. And, and so it's, it's a lot like parenting. You know, it's, if you're married, you, you talk about it, and you don't talk about parenting one time, right? You work on it. You keep working on it. You keep talking about it. With your finances, it's not one conversation, right? And seasons change in your marriage. And so you talk about finances when you first get married and you talk about finances when you've been married a few years and you keep talking about it. And then when you are in your 40s and 50s and 60s, you keep talking about these issues and they're important. And we're going to give an account to the Lord for all these things. And this is no different, right? This is another area of sanctification in your life. So I encourage you to, to, to commit to working on these things. And again, next week I'll give you some practical things to think about. So we'll come back. We'll do that. Um, we'll also talk about, if we have time, how to maintain passion and unity in your marriage over the long haul. Okay, so way into the future, if God gives you many years together, how do you maintain those things? And then again, we'll try to come back the, the week before Christmas, kind of wrap up some loose ends, talk about the issue of of singleness because I think there's some confusion um, about that and there'll just be some miscellaneous things I think that we just want to talk about that we've had to sort of skip over. Um, but I hope you, again, you hope you're getting a lot out of this. I know it's, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it and I think it's very, very relevant for, for us as believers in Christ, regardless of the station of life that we're in, regardless of where God has us uh, in, in, at the present in, in his providence. So... All right, appreciate your time, guys.